I was in the third grade for three years. This is true, but probably not in the way you might imagine. I was in a combined second and third grade class when I was in the second grade, and I was in a third grade class that was standalone when I was in third grade, and I was in a combined third and fourth grade class when I was in fourth grade. So I got third grade three years in a row. Needless to say, this caused me to lose some focus, especially in my fourth grade year when um, the teacher was teaching the third grade students and we were supposed to be working on some project or other. Uh, This was exacerbated by the fact that our our school was destroyed by a tornado that year. That's a time story for another day. And we were meeting in a, a church basement with the folding door type thing packed in. I mean, we were 35 students just, just packed in here. And um, <clears throat> the Red Cross, we were, we were, because we were the recipients of a disaster, the Red Cross would come by once a month and give us stuff. No, no criticism of the Red Cross. They do great stuff. But the stuff they gave us, worthless. They gave us a comb once a month. Okay, thank you very much. They gave, us these, they gave us these red pills that if you chewed on them, they were supposed to identify cavities in your teeth. Only one kid tried that, you know. It was just, um, But one of the cool things they gave us was a pen that when you pressed it down and you could press on the side and the little, the top to the pen would click up then, right? And I had figured out in conjunction with a friend of mine that if you took little pieces of paper and you put them on the top and you clicked it down, you could go pew and the paper would go flying. And you probably, you know, as packed as we were, you could probably hit 10 or 12 students, you know, with these things. And I'm just having a grand old time. You know. Mrs. Floyd apparently had been trying to get my attention for some time while I was doing this because all of a sudden while I'm She's right there, <laughs> this far away. And she grabs me by the shoulders. This could not be done these days. Grabs me by the shoulders and goes, what are you doing? And I'm just going, <laughs> I had lost focus, okay? Now I invite you to open your Bibles to Titus chapter three. And I hope it won't be a kind of thing where I'm grabbing you by the shoulders and rattling your neck, but I do hope that we will get a wake-up call this morning to recommit to a focused Christian life. Uh, We've been in Titus uh, for some time now. I think it was uh, August 21st that we first began our series. And we now conclude this little letter that's chocked full of truth. It's a dense letter that Paul has written to Titus, who is overseeing a group of churches on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean. We have seen how God operates in the true Christian's life in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. From the beginning, which goes before the ages began, 
all the way to the point of hearing the word of God preached and believing the operation of God in the true Christian's life. We looked at who the true Christian should follow and as we looked at the qualifications for church elders in the middle of chapter one. And then we saw at the end of chapter one, true Christians and discernment. There are people that, are, that will rise up even within the church who could upset whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not. And so the growth of the Christian in the er- of the true Christian in the area of discernment. We looked at the true Christian in relationships and older men and younger men and older women and younger women and how that should affect our character in chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. And we even circled in our Bibles, I think, the the verbs to be. So in chapter 2, verse 2, older men are to be, and these characteristics. Older women, likewise, are to be, verse 3. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure, etc. Verse 6, likewise, urge younger men to be. Uh, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Slaves, verse 9, are to be submissive. And so the idea here is that true Christians grow in their relationships intergenerationally so that their character changes. In verses 11 through 15 of chapter 2, we saw the true Christians' motivations were motivated by the grace of God and by Jesus' soon return. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation And it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. We're waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then last week, we looked at how the gospel helps true Christians to live in a wicked world. We saw how the world is growing increasingly wicked, and yet in the midst of that increasingly wicked world, we're called to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. This morning we come to chapter 3, verses 8 through 15, and the end of our letter, and Paul is going to help Titus understand that what his A big part of his task among believers is for he himself to be focused and to teach the people of these churches in Crete to be laser beam focused on this wonderful statement that we have here at East White Oak, seeking to be worshipers, maturing in Christ. So let's stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Titus chapter 3, verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless." As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. 
When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Please be seated. So in verse 8, we have in kind of a summary form what the true Christian must focus upon. And he begins it by saying, the saying is trustworthy. This could perhaps be something that Paul has commonly taught in the past, or it could be something that's just commonly known among first century believers. But he's saying this saying is true, and then the question is, is he talking about what what he says immediately after saying the saying is trustworthy, or is he referring to something before he says the saying is trustworthy? Is he saying that what just came before, that's trustworthy? Or is he saying, what I'm about to say, this is trustworthy? And the reason why that's a hard question is because if you examine all of the places where Paul uses that phrase, sometimes it goes with the stuff that's before it, and sometimes it goes with the stuff after it. Let me take you on a little journey. It's just in First and Second Timothy and in Titus that Paul says these words. So it's in these what are called pastoral epistles, where he's trying to train church leaders in how to lead, that he says this phrase, the saying is true, or the saying is trustworthy. The first one is in 1 Timothy 1.5, or 1.15, I'm sorry. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Well, that's for sure the saying that comes after it, right? What's trustworthy? Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and Paul's saying, and I'm the worst of them, okay? The second time it appears is in 1 Timothy 3.1, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of elder or overseer, he desires a noble task. And so, again, the saying is trustworthy being something that happens after he says the statement. But then in verse uh, 1 Timothy 4, we see something a little different. Paul says, while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God. So when he says it that way, it's like, The trustworthy saying is what comes before he says that, which is, while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. It holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And then the other time where this appears is in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. Paul says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we've died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we'll also reign with him. If we deny, he'll also deny us. If we're faithless, he proves himself faithful. 
Here it looks like it refers to what happens before. He's enduring things that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So the question you want to answer for yourself here in verse 8 of Titus 3 is, is the saying trustworthy what happens after he says that phrase, or is it what happens before? I'll give you a moment to think about it. That's just a moment. That's all you get. Um, it seems to me that if you look at this, the stuff that's said before that, those words, it says, being justified by his grace, we become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That makes more sense to believe that that's the trustworthy saying than I want you to insist on these things. So I think that what Paul is saying is that what the Christian needs to focus on is his position of being justified by God's grace to become heirs of the hope of eternal life and to live in that hope, to have his life changed by it. Not just to believe it, not just to say, yeah, I give assent to it or I affirm it as true, but to say, now, like we sang, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to you. Paul wants Titus to insist on the character of the true Christian. Look what he says there in verse 9, or verse 8. I want you to insist on these things, these things of justification by grace through faith, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. In other words, you take that trustworthy saying, that justification by grace through faith, and you allow it to transform your life. You are seeking to be a worshiper in all of your life. Maturing in Christ. Too many of us can go long stretches of our Christian lives just kind of sitting with our engines in neutral, not headed anywhere, directionless, unfocused. Paul's talking about focus here. So that's what the true Christian must focus upon. Now, Paul wants to define that a little further by talking a little bit about what the true Christian must not focus upon. Sometimes seeing what you ought to focus upon is seen more clearly by looking in sharp relief at what you shouldn't focus on. And verses 9 through 11 tell us that. Um, <clears throat> he wants us to focus on the character of the true Christian the goal of true Christians to reflect their faith in God by their good works. He's saying good works don't save. He was very clear on that. Look at chapter 3, verse 5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. Not that way. That's not how we're saved. But good works are not optional for the true Christian either. He's saying, I want you to assist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Those things are not an accident. They take care and devotion. You say, you, you, you know, 
Here's something that I think is interesting. Have you ever asked yourself the question, why haven't I made more progress in my Christian life? What's wrong with me? One possible reason is that you have not taken care to devote yourself to good works. This taking care to devote yourself to good works, it says at the end of verse 9, is excellent and profitable for people. It's good for you. It's profitable for you. So now let's look at that sharp relief of what the true Christian must not focus upon in verses 9 through 11. You know, there's a ton of things that grab at our attention that we must not focus on. In fact, these things, as I've looked at the span of my life as a Christian, seem to be so attractive to us for some reason. They seem to grab our attention away from the passion of worship of God, of devotion to Christ. There's a ton of these things. Don't focus, Paul's going to say here in this section, don't focus on the wrong issues and don't focus on the wrong people. Let's think about not focusing on the wrong issues. Verse 9, avoid, he gives four things here, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Avoid foolish controversies. Do you know there is such a thing as hair splitting in the Christian life? People can get so lathered up over some issue or other, and they're just like, and and sometimes people will start whole churches based on a foolish controversy. It causes us to lose our focus from devotion to Christ because he's saved us by his grace. He says, secondly, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, trying to make a big case built around genealogies. Now, in context, you have to understand that the church was made up of Jewish people and Gentile people. And Jewish people prided themselves in being able to know their genealogies all the way back. And the more you knew it, the more important of a person you were within Judaism. The more you were in, okay? So imagine this. What you have is a church here where some pagan, somebody who's just never even known the name of the God of Israel or of Jesus the Messiah, comes in and he's gloriously saved, brought to faith in Christ, but everybody in the group is talking about who's related to whom. And he's not related to anybody. Paul says avoid that. Avoid that mess. Don't deal with insider information. It loses our focus. Third one, dissensions. There are things that immediately arouse fighting. I could say a few words here that it would immediately probably split our group into two factions or more, you know. And do I have opinions about things as a pastor of, you know, yeah, I've got personal opinions about certain things or other. But do do those things need to be shared from the pulpit? Of course not. Why? Because it takes away our attention on the gospel of Jesus Christ and our focus of being worshipers maturing in Jesus. 
And then the fourth one is quarrels about the law. You know, there are issues about, uh, of personal conviction and, and of freedom for Christians. Different ones will answer those questions different ways. And Paul says, don't get caught up in that. Don't get caught up in those kind of quarrels. It's going to take your focus away. So when you think about, you know, things like uh, uh, issues of dress or various lifestyle choices, people can get really lathered up and focused on those things. And Paul says, no, no, no. Our focus must be on Christ. Now, this instruction here about these four things, avoid these foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, that's in keeping with Paul's teaching throughout the pastoral epistles. So, for example, if you go back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4, he says, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. It gets you off the gospel. Or 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 4, He's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Anybody teaching a different doctrine. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. See, it gets our focus away. Or uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 16. Avoid irreverent babble for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. <laughs> That's getting rather graphic, isn't it? Or 2 Timothy 2.23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. So, the true Christian must not focus on the wrong issues. Now in verse 10, I'm back to Titus chapter 3 now, Titus 3.10, Paul says to Titus, don't focus on the wrong people either. This may seem surprising to some who think that everyone in the church should be treated equally. And it is true, indeed, that everyone is worthy of honor, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17 says, honor everyone. Everyone deserves honor. But there's one category of people that must be ignored or even separated from. That is a person who causes division. Now, I don't know of a single person who will ever admit to being the one who causes division. Nobody's ever come up to me and said, um, you know the problems we're having in our church? It's my fault. It just doesn't happen. Usually, divisive people think that they have an excellent case. In fact, they believe that they have a moral imperative. In my experience as a pastor, I've observed something very fascinating. I don't know whether it's uh, uh, universal, but I've noticed this, that a divisive person will make some huge deal out of nothing in the church and if they don't get their way, they leave, but most of the time, they end up at a church that is even farther from them theologically and culturally. I, I don't know why that is, but it's often true. Another thing that happens is that 
the divisive person can often get their way. And when that happens, look out. Because a new veto authority has been established in the church. That's why Paul sees it important enough to warn Titus about it. And the warning here is very clear. After warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Uh, The person then no longer gains a hearing. What happens is that everyone in the church should just stop listening to them. That kind of person thrives on an audience, and when an audience is denied, the church becomes a much happier place. It can also be that have nothing to do with him means more than just ignoring. If the divisiveness is loud enough, long enough, and frequent enough, it may be that church discipline reaching even to excommunication is warranted. You might say, wait a minute, that seems harsh, especially over someone who's just using words. Yeah, I see the person is dividing the church, but that's just Joe. And forgive me if your name is Joe. I see the person's dividing in the church, uh, dividing the church, but that's just Joe. Why can't we just live with it? To live with it is to doom the church to mediocrity and failure to gain traction or to stay on mission. The church loses its focus. Now, there's another reason why, and it probably is the most important reason. That is, God hates this stuff. Proverbs 6, 16 to 19, there's this N, N plus one thing uh, that kind of is a, the reason why God says it, it in the Bible this way isn't because, oh yeah, I had six. No, 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 wait a minute, I'm thinking of seven. No, no, no. He's saying six, yes, seven. It means to make this, it's a Hebrew way of saying this is really important stuff, what I'm about to say. There's six things the Lord hates, seven are abomination to him. And the ones that are all in bold there are all having to do with division. Haughty eyes might not be, just as a matter of personal pride, but a lying tongue, uh, hands that shed innocent blood, whether literally or figuratively, uh, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run haste to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and then it's just baldly stated, one who sows discord among brothers. So, that's another really good reason why you handle a divisive person in this way, right? God hates it. If you ask most pastors or church leaders, you'll discover that 90% of the time is taken up quite often with 10% of the people. Now, sometimes that's not bad or wrong, since some people do need what I might term spiritual intensive care, but all too frequently the church is stymied by divisive persons and online and social media opportunities to be divisive abound. There's a natural desire on the part of church leaders to seek out people and bring reconciliation, but Paul says, give two shots at it and then be done. You might ask the question, well, wait a minute, how does that fit into the gospel? The gospel of the second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth and on and on chance. Don't you give people a more further chance for that than that? And the answer is it fits into that gospel just fine. But where there's no receptivity, even Jesus recommended that there was a point at which we shake the dust off our feet. 
Another of Jesus' commands is, don't throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. So Paul gives Titus clear reason for this strategy of non-engagement with divisive people. Look at verse 11. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Basically, that person, in the word of one commentator, is off track. They've gotten off track. They may even be right about one or another of the minutiae about which they are focused upon, but they are off track. The divisive person is sinful. They're um, not being condemned by those who warn him. He's self-condemned. He's condemned himself. And if allowed, he will get the church and other people off track. It's very easy then for us to gather our attention and our affection around debates that matter nothing. So, how the true Christian, uh, what the true Christian must not focus upon is important, isn't it? Now, let's look at how the true Christian relates to other believers. We'll look at the conclusion of this message. Paul says, um, come see me at Nicopolis when Artemis and Tychicus get to you. So Paul is not operating in a vacuum. He's not a Lone Ranger Christian. He is rather a person who's in community, in relationship with others. And he is sending these two guys, Artemis and Tychicus, and he's saying, when they get to you, they're going to take your place doing some stuff, and you come to spend the winter with me at Nicopolis for recharging, regrouping, instruction, who knows what. It's not specifically stated, but... Paul wants Titus to join him there at Nicopolis. Now, you might ask the question if you've been here at East White Oak very long, Nicopolis, where is Nicopolis? Uh, I'm glad you asked that question because, and say it with me now, I have a map. Yes, I have a map. So Nicopolis is on the east side of Greece, just above the Peloponnesia, there where Corinth is the capital. And its, its name means city of victory. You might wonder, well, how does the name, you know, Nike, the tennis shoe, you know, has the swoosh, you know, nip victory. But here it's called the city of victory. How did it get that name? Because about a hundred years before the apostle Paul wrote his letter to Titus, this happened. Octavian, who became Caesar Augustus, fought a battle with Mark Antony and Cleopatra, and in this battle, Mark, uh, Mark Antony and Cleopatra were defeated by Octavian, and as a result, Octavian became Caesar Augustus. He became the Caesar. And so Caesar had this city built just across the, the um, little strait there from where the battle took place at Actium, He had this city built in honor of his victory. And so that's how the city of Nicopolis got founded. Now, at this point you're saying, boring. Why does he have to tell us all this stuff? And I want to tell you one more time why I tell you these things. Because Christianity, 
of every religion is not a religion that is just ethereal, well, we'll just kind of believe fun thoughts and nice ideas and it's not rooted in anything. That's not Christianity. Christianity is a faith that is grounded in space and in time. A real people who really lived and real things happened to them. And so when Paul's going to talk about how he's fleshing out this focused life, he's saying, I'm doing it in community in real time and in real places. And there's a real place called Nicopolis. And Paul really intended to spend the winter there. And he really wanted Titus to join him. It's, it's firmly rooted in space and time. And if you want to deny Christianity, if you want to prove Christianity wrong, all you have to do is, say, is show that the space and time nature of Christianity is wrong. And it has never been accomplished. You know why? Because it's true. <laughs> the stuff really happened. So when I tell you stories about Octavian fighting Cleopatra and Mark Antony, and you guys are going, you know, know that the reason why Nicopolis is there is because of that, and Nicopolis becomes important in the Bible because Paul wants to spend the winter there with Titus to refocus, okay? Artemis... Uh, is mentioned here, it's the only place where he's mentioned in the Bible, so we don't know anything about him. Uh, Tychicus is likely the Tychicus of Acts chapter 20, uh, and the fellow that Paul sent to Ephesus and Colossae, this, and he said in both uh, Ephesians 6 and Colossians 4, I'm sending Tychicus who will tell you all about me. In other words, uh, Tychicus has been a man who's been a companion of Paul's, and he can give the full story on exactly how Paul is doing. Again, a relational Christianity that isn't just based in, you know, like nice little woo, weird God thoughts, but real life, really living day to day. And then it says... Uh, and, and by the way, Tychicus was also Paul's personal representative to churches as found in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. Verse 13, do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. Apparently, Zenos and Apollos are there on Crete, and Paul says, send them on out um, and see that they are fully provisioned for being able to leave Crete. Again, Zenos, we don't know anything about him except that he's a lawyer. This is the only place where his name appears in the Bible. But um, he could be uh, a Roman lawyer focused on Roman law, but more likely, it's my opinion, that he was focused on Jewish law and a person who understand the, understood the Jewish laws and then how to build this Jewish Gentile beautiful new society that we call the church. Apollos is very famous in the, old, in the New Testament, isn't he? Um, the people at Corinth said, I, you know, had a whole ballot initiative. I'm for Paul, I'm for Apollos, uh, all of that. He was a very effective teacher, apologist for the Christian faith. But notice that there's no competition from Paul's or Paulus's end. They're not competing. They're not causing that division. No, they're working together. Do your best to speed Apollos on his way so that he lacks nothing. 
It's a beautiful picture of a focused life centered around Christ and not his own kingdom, focused on the relationships of those brothers around him. Make sure they're fully provisioned. Verse 14, he then says, let our people learn, the word learn is discipleize, learn to devote themselves to good works. There's an important connection in the gospel to good works in Titus. It's an important connection. Um, You all know, right, that we are not made right with God by our works. Look up at chapter 3, verse 5 again. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. But having received Jesus as our Savior and trusted him to forgive us of our sins through nothing we do, that should result in a changed life, a life of good works. And so let me take you on a little journey through Titus to see how this is true. Titus chapter 1 verse 16, talking about these false teachers, it says they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. One way you can test a a, a false teacher is that they're not doing anything worthy of Christ. Titus chapter 2, verse 7, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Titus 2, 14, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Titus chapter 3, verse 8. The saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And now chapter 3, verse 14, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. There are too many people in, in, within Christianity that say, oh, I trusted Jesus as my Savior. Now I've got the fire insurance. I'm just going to go on and live the way I want to. That's not true Christian. A true Christian is saved, yes, only by grace through faith in Christ. But that profession is shown to be true by the actions that we give as an offering of worship to the Lord for the rest of our lives. And when we're saying, when we say we're saved by grace through faith, sometimes we say that so often and loudly enough that we could easily give the impression that good works are unimportant. No, good works are absolutely important. They're just not important to get saved. (laughs) They're absolutely important to have the focused life, to live a life that's honoring and pleasing to the Lord. The purpose of these good works, if you'll see it there in verse 14, is to be able to help in cases of urgent need. There's needs all around us. There are hurting people everywhere. And what are we going to do? Pass by on the other side? Or are we going to seek to be agents of blessing and help and hope to people who are hurting? Not only that, it says that 
good works don't just help in cases of urgent need, it keeps us from being unfruitful. That is, there's a fruit to our lives, an outgrowth of our faith in Christ that produces the good fruit of righteousness. And so, as we think about this idea of focus, I'm kind of, I just want to challenge you. I just want to challenge you. Don't just let days go by living purposelessly. Really think and pray and talk to others about how your life can best count for Christ. And see who are the people around me that I need to invest my life in that they might know Christ and love him. You know, we're going to talk more about this next week, but we have three pathways of such a growth in discipleship whereby we become worshipers maturing in Christ. We meet together in our worship services. We have adult Bible fellowships where in a little bit smaller group we grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And then we have small groups where people can really do life-on-life work of fleshing out the scriptures in practical ways. And we need to think about it, not just in terms of, well, what do I get out of it? (laughs) But a focused life is thinking about how can I invest and contribute to the discipleship of others? You might say, yeah, I don't really need a small group. Has you ever considered the possibility that the small group may need you? It's part of the measure of a focused life. He concludes, all who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. You might say, yeah, yeah, we get that. That's how Paul ends letters. But look at it again. Look at how Paul lives in community here. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. It's relational. Christianity isn't just about me and my personal relationship with Jesus. It is that, but it's more than that. It's a relationship with one another. And then he adds, grace, grace be with you all. The unmerited favor of God be with you all. Which tells us, by the way, that Titus was not just a personal letter to Titus. The fact that he says all there suggests that it was meant to be read to the churches on the island of Crete. This morning, is Christ your sure and steady anchor in the fury of the storm? Can you sing, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee? Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. We sang that. And I hope that this morning, even if perhaps more gently than Mrs. Floyd gave me, you got a little wake-up call to repurpose and refocus your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for these words from Scripture. Teach us what we should each do about them. And may we do so 
with a focused life on knowing our justification by grace through faith and having that impact how we live our lives with good works in community with other brothers and sisters in your family. Lord, if there's anyone here who's never put their faith in Jesus, I pray they would hear this clearly. We are not saved by our good works. We're saved by our faith in Christ and that they would trust Jesus to forgive them of their sin so that then they would be equipped to serve and love you, to worship you with all their lives. In Jesus' precious name we ask these things. Amen.